Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a group of my colleagues, my two co-hosts, Marissa, Marissa Di Natale and Chris Dorides, and also Dante D'Antonio. Of course, this is a jobs, well, I guess this is jobs weekend, but I'm Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> Saturday. <laughs> uh, but it's good to have you all. Uh, good to see everybody. How's everyone doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. I'm ready for this podcast. I know. No better uh, way to start a weekend. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we're doing it on the weekend because uh, I I was at CBO yesterday, Congress, Congressional Budget Office, a couple, uh, maybe twice, three times a year, we get together a group of economists to go over their budget and wasn't able to break away for the podcast. And now I'm in London. I'm sitting in London uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, good to be with you all. And um We've got our own uh, conference here uh, in London, uh, I think on Tuesday. So yeah, here for that. Um, What's the mood in London? I don't know. I haven't had, it's, well, I haven't had a chance to take a, the pulse, but. He hasn't left his hotel room yet. Yeah, <laughs> I just, I actually, I flew in, I came to the hotel, I went right to sleep for another two to three hours. Oh. It was a flight, it was only six hours. I mean, it was like we had yeah. a hurricane blowing tailwind, you know, over here. So we got here very quickly, so I didn't have much of a chance to sleep, but uh, uh, just get going here. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, uh, it's gloomy. Typical London gloom. <laughs> it's like dark outside. I don't know how, how they how folks live with, live with this kind of gloominess, but uh, somehow they do. Uh, anyway, uh, Jobs Friday uh, came out yesterday. Um, lots to talk about. We action-packed week uh, of data. Um, Dante, uh, you're pretty good at doing the rundown. You want to give us the rundown on the jobs numbers? I, I can do that. Um, okay. I would I would say by and large the you know the October report was pretty good. I think there's certainly you know more room to you know sort of pick holes in some weak spots maybe than we've seen recently. But you know we added 150,000 jobs, you know, which is sort of back to the the moderation that we had seen for most of 2023 after getting a you know sort of outsized gain last month. Uh, a three month moving average of of job gains is still just over 200,000, so still you know probably stronger than we would like it to be. Uh, you know, I think employee, like, job gains were more concentrated this month. You know, government kicked in another fifty thousand plus. Uh, healthcare still is the you know, biggest driver of private sector job gains. You know, adding over seventy five thousand jobs. Uh, manufacturing fell, but that was obviously you know, sort of a one off impact of the UAW strike, which, while it had already ended before the report came out, obviously impacted the October jobs numbers. So I wouldn't expect that to continue. That should bounce back. I would think mostly next month. Uh, you know, other than that, job growth was you know, either pretty weak or or fell in a number of industries. You know, leisure and hospitality sort of came back down, only added nineteen thousand jobs after a, a much bigger gain last month. Construction still holding up, I think. You know, sort of despite all the headwinds, added twenty three thousand jobs, which you know again seems to be much more resilient than I think we keep expecting it to be. Uh, some small losses in transportation and warehousing, which has been you know pretty up and down in the last six or nine months. Uh, information down a little bit, but again, that's been you know sort of flat to down in the last six months or so. Um, on the wage growth side, I think yeah, we got more. It was a mix, you know, good news this month, but there were some upward revisions to the the prior two months to made it slightly less positive. Uh, your wages were up 0.2 percent over the month. 
they're now up 4.1% year over year, which again is you know, moving in the right direction. They continue to moderate and trend lower over time, which is again, what we're hoping to see. Um, you know, sort of adding to the weakness in terms of job gains, we had average weekly hours tick a little bit lower too. Uh, so there's clearly some, some weakening, I think on the demand side here, um, which I think comes through sort of across the, the payroll survey. Uh, on the household survey side, certainly more weakness, more things to sort of you know, keep an eye on moving forward. The unemployment rate ticked up to 3.9% from from 3.8. Um, and it was for the wrong reasons, right, that we talk about. We had the labor force actually contract a bit in October. You had a, you had a pretty big decline in employment as measured by the household survey. So those two things together you know, sort of fueled that uh, uptick in the unemployment rate, which is you know, not ideal. Um other than that, I would say you know, across the board in the household survey, things were just a little bit weak. Labor force participation came down a little bit. The employment to population ratio came down a little bit. It was just a little bit weaker uh, than the the payroll survey would have suggested. But all in all, I think you know, in terms of thinking about a a soft landing or you know the Fed not needing to raise rates again, you know, I think it, it sort of checks the boxes in terms of showing that the labor market is still weakening and not crashing and burning as of now. Did you mention the strike effects? Did you? I missed that. If you did, how that? many jobs did were uh, did we lose because of the uh, UAW strike and the other strikes? It was about thirty thousand between UAW and there was a smaller strike also in manufacturing. I think it was Mac Mac truck maybe. Uh, it's about thirty thousand. Manufacturing was down thirty five, so most of that was strike related. Right. So you know you throw in you throw in the thirty five k you're back up close to 200k right which is kind of like the average monthly job growth we've been getting 200k right which is weaker but is still strong i mean it's like yeah you know that's still pretty strong right it is yeah okay um and and it's kind of the bad news is good news kind of thing i mean and it's not even really bad news but it's just weak. when you say weak that's interpreted as well that's uh, okay we want it. We want it a little weaker, right? Because it takes the pressure off the labor market, wages, and helps the Fed get inflation back in the bottle. I, I, I'm kind of leading the witness here, but I, is, is that kind of roughly right? Yeah, I think if anything, right, we need we need more. We we need to be more uncomfortable, right? I think we more, need some okay, of these, okay, we need some uglier jobs reports in terms of you know job growth being weaker. Yeah, I think we need to get a little more uncomfortable here over the next six months or so, probably. Well, I, I don't think we should even call it ugly, right? I mean, that's that's that, that's what we need. Right, be on a sustainable path forward without inflation being a problem. Right. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Um, uh, Marissa, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I think we have a different bar now, right? I think like to us, 150,000 is, oh, that's really, that's really bad. That's really weak. The unemployment rate ticked up a 10th of a percentage point, but we're so used to getting these outsized gains over the last few years that <clears throat> I think this is, I think this is actually perfect, kind of. It's kind of right where we want to see job growth slowing to. I, I will say, I think the strike effect probably took off about between the UAW, it's not only the UAW, right? This actor's strike has been going on for some time and that's depressed um, information. <clears throat> uh, employment, there's about 160,000 people involved in that strike, according to BLS. And that industry has lost cumulatively about 40,000 jobs over the last three or four months since the strike started in July. So there's a little bit coming from that. It's it's small, but it's probably gets us up to about 200,000, which is probably where we really are in terms of job growth, which is still pretty 
good. Um, as Dante said, construction keeps rolling along. And I was looking at that. That's across all segments of construction. It's residential, non-residential, and public infrastructure, um, heavy construction. Um, so I like this job report and that the slowdown in average hourly earnings is, is good. The diffusion index slowed, meaning that there were fewer um, industries that were adding to jobs. So we, we saw a little bit more job loss across industries, but it's still above 50%. So we still have over half of industries adding to job growth. If you, you know, we want to talk about weakness or anything we're worried about, I think we'd really have to look at the household survey, but even there it's one month and we all know how the household survey can flip and flop from month to month. So I'm not um, as worried about that. And if you dissect that decline, that big decline in employment, which was over 300,000, it was pretty much split between agriculture, private industry, wage and salary workers, and the non-ag industries and the self-employed. So it was kind of, it was widespread, which maybe isn't good, but it wasn't all coming out of uh, wage and salary workers. Um, little decline in in the participation rate. It was almost exclusively amongst people that usually work part-time. Um, it wasn't among full-time workers. Their employment actually rose. So um, I'm not I'm not worried that we're heading for some sort of harder landing. I think this is a good report. Yeah. So just to um, step back a little bit uh, to give people more context. So the we've got the payroll survey. That's the survey of businesses. That was 150k that's affected by the strike. So if you th throw the workers that were striking back in, you're saying we're closer to 200k. But okay. Then we've got the survey of households, uh, which is another smaller survey and therefore subject to more volatility and data issues and that kind of thing. And that sh that is that showed more weakness. There was actually mm -hmm. a decline in employment by by the household survey. But that thing bounces around all, all over the place, you know, month to month, given the size of the survey. But it has been weaker more recently. I think in the last like six months or so haven't really seen much growth in household employment. Uh, and that's uh, shown much more weakness. But you're saying really no big deal, at least, at least not yet. Okay. All right. No, and there's not, I, I mean, sometimes people talk about the household survey leading the yeah. payroll survey, mm -hmm. but the evidence for that is pretty thin if you look Scanty. back historically. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Um, okay. Dante, do you know what the, household survey adjusted for the payroll survey did? Uh, I had not looked at it. I can take a look though. Okay. Yeah, um, that'd be good to know. Because I know a lot of the job loss was among the self-employed. So um, yeah, and to your part about you know, the volatility, if you look over the last 12 months on the household survey, employment yeah. growth is still like 200,000 a month over the last 12 months. I mean, it, it bounces around a lot more, but it's still strong yeah. on average. So after over the past 12 months, the household survey and the payroll survey, survey are basically saying the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. But it would be good to know because the BLA, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the data, does publish the household survey data uh, on the same definitional basis as the payroll survey, because there are definitional differences here. So it was uh, it was a big difference. So adjusted for payroll concept, it was actually up one hundred eighty eight thousand instead of down three hundred forty eight thousand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So so no difference. Yeah. Okay. It's basically All the right. same. Okay. Basically That's because over 
over like about two thirds of that decline was in was farm workers and self-employed, self-employed. who aren't included in the payroll survey. Got yeah. it. Okay. All right. So Dante's pretty sanguine. Um, although I use the word weakness a, a lot, but Can't it's all myself. relative. Nothing to worry about. Yeah. Uh, Marissa's sanguine. Chris, what do you say? It's okay. <laughs> okay. It's an okay report. <laughs> I noticed that we didn't really mention the uh, revisions. Uh, yeah, you're right. All right. Pretty fairly significant revisions, right? Subtracted 100K over the last couple months. So, you know, as usual, I'd take the top line number here with a grain of salt. Could be revised down. Um, and then I do, I, I'd highlight a couple other potential warning signs the number of permanent job lo- uh, loss, number of people on permanent job loss. Uh, rose, right? 1.6 million, which was pretty relatively high. Um, You have to go back to 2018 outside the pandemic. So you do see some cracks in the pavement there. And I also keyed in on um, number of people with multiple jobs, rose 800K over the last year. So um, potential sign of folks under financial stress having to pick up a second job, perhaps. So again, okay report, positive, Sure, but you know, moving in a in a more concerning direction. Yeah, although you know, push back a little bit. Because sure, it's, sure, it's like to our forecast. I mean, we've been expecting, continue to forecast this slowing in job creation and all the things, you know, so, somewhat of a tick up in the unemployment rate, and uh, you know, all the things that we're observing. There, it's kind of like sticking right to script, right? I mean. It makes you nervous when it's ha- actually happening because you're saying you're thinking to yourself, "Well, is it going to be worse than we actually forecasted?" But it's actually very s- close to our forecast, right? I mean, it is, it is. Yeah. But I, I think yeah. to your point, right? At this point in the yeah. uh, in the evolution, you know, yeah. this this trend is either consistent with the script of no recession and we glide through, and it's or it's consistent with the oh things are moving in a more negative direction, they're going to continue to fall down, right? So, yeah. But but on that front, what 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 would be driving a, a more serious weakening in the economy? I mean, what is it that's fundamentally driving? Because now now let's take a bigger step back. All the things we've been worried about, you know, kind of the, all the headwinds we've been talking about that might hurt the economy. You know, UAW strike uh, would be an example, or student uh, uh, bar, loan borrowers having to start paying again, or the uh, oil prices, or long-term interest rates. And, all, and all, you know, there's still the government potential government shutdown. You know, there's still those are headwinds, potential headwinds. But after this week, it feels like all those headwinds are blowing less hard, don't, don't they? I mean, you got oil prices that came back down. We're now instead of 90 plus, we're kind of 80 plus, kind of sort of where we've been and where we expected. Long-term treasury yields, 10-year treasury yields, they were closing in on five. They were over five, I think, intraday at points. Now we're back down closer to four and a half, which is kind of sort of okay. So it feels like the fundamental things to worry about are less. Now, of course, this is one week, a couple of yeah. weeks. It can move very quickly. But on the other hand, these things don't they don't seem to suggest some fundamental weakening in the economy or there should be some fundamental weakening in the economy well the rates are still high right four and a half is still a high rate 
are they really high though? I mean, when you think about where it feels like this, they're back to where they should be in a well-functioning economy, right? Four and a half. It's not that much different from what we've been calling for, right? Kind of, kind of around four. And we have been marking kind of thinking about marking up our sort of so-called equilibrium rate. So maybe what would be consistent with a well-functioning economy is somewhere between four, four and a half. So is four and a half really that big a deal? I'm just asking. Yeah, well, I think it. Yeah. I think it does have a, an impact yeah. on consumers, and you know, you talked about student loan. Yeah, we haven't seen any evidence yet, but it's still early days. That's true. Um, we where, did see le- leisure hospitality. What's that? You know, I was going to say on that one in particular. I, I'm kind of you'd expect that to show up. Where would you see see it? Like retail sales, consumer spending. I guess it's early. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know, right? Yeah, uh, right. It's okay. still pretty early there. Delinquencies, yeah. right? Delinquencies are still ticking up uh, overall. So you know, there certainly are cracks uh, in the foundation here. Yeah. Do they develop into something larger or not? That's that's the question. And leisure hospitality, employment, you know, slowing down here. Is that suggestive of consumers pulling back on some of the, the Taylor Swift spending we talked about last week? Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I, uh, I want to do, I mean, I look at that report and I go, that's about as good as it gets. I mean, uh, you know, 200,000 average monthly job growth. Yeah. Maybe down revisions, but I'll, I'll take them. I, I have no problem with that. I mean, because we do ultimately need to see job growth throttle back here because we can't, continue to see labor supply increase to the degree that it has been that just the demographics don't support that unless you know some of this is immigration and maybe we're going to get more we are getting a lot more immigrants into the country both legally and undocumented and you know maybe we we will be surprised with more labor supply but barring that we do need to see kind of monthly job growth that's no more than no more than 100k i mean that that's what we need to be able to, you know, uh, support a stable unemployment rate given where labor force growth, we where I think labor force growth is headed. So that all felt per- pretty good. Um, you know, hours worked, uh, the moderation in wage growth, uh, you know, it just it all feels like it's coming together. It's almost like you couldn't ask for a better script, you know, at this point. Uh, and of course the markets took it that way. That's the other thing. <clears throat> If you go back a week ago or two weeks ago, I, I always put too much weight on the stock market. If I see red on the screen, it always makes me more nervous than it really should. And when I see green on the screen, it makes me more optimistic than it really should. But I'll have to say, lots of green this past week on, on screens. I mean, the stock market is like, boom, we're right back you know, to where we were. You know, So uh, that's the other thing that makes me feel a little bit you know, better about how things are going. So it all, you know, I don't know, uh, just... Couldn't ask, hard to ask for a better report, but, uh, but uh, okay. Um, uh, let's, uh, anything else on the report that you want to, you want to bring up? No? The one interesting thing I saw, you know, I, I mentioned being more uncomfortable. If you go back yeah. right before the pandemic, you know, obviously we had a tight labor market. There were six times where in like the year and a half before the pandemic started, where we got readings under a hundred K and we even had one decline in that period. Oh. So 
Wow. Yeah, I think it's not like it's that you know, far in history that we have to think back to imagine a world where there's a tight labor market and job growth is coming in pretty weak and it's you know, sort of what we want to see happen. I mean, so there's, I think we never got to see how that played out, obviously, because the pandemic happened, but I think we need to see something similar happen here moving forward. You know, 200K is, like you said, too strong to keep going here. It's not sustainable. Although, to my, I'm curious what you think about my previous point about immigration. Is that a possibility? I think it could help some. I don't know if it gets, you know, does that, I don't know if that means we can sustain 200,000 jobs a month here, you know, sort of perpetually, but maybe it allows us to sustain slightly higher level, maybe. Right. Right. I did want to ask one factual question on the participation rate, because we went from 62.8 to 62.7%. And in the grand scheme of things, that's no, I don't think that's a means anything of consequence, but was, was that a broad based decline in participation across? No, it wasn't. Was it were you going to say across demographic groups? Yeah, well, age groups or you know, anything. Was it? It was mostly adults. So teen participation rose. It was mostly men. It was mostly, and it was uh, among married men. Huh. And the decline in employment was abstracting from participation, but looking at the decline in employment, it was mostly among, I think I said, people that work part time. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't every group. Okay. And, and do you view it more as noise than signal? I mean, it's just more volatility. I would want to see a few more months of this before I, before I read too much into it. Read too much into it. Okay. 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 Very good. Um, oh, the other, uh, labor market statistic that came out this week that I, I wanted to highlight, uh, I think it came out on Wednesday was Productivity. Did you guys mm-hmm. catch that? I mean, that's a. I think Dante did. I think. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah. I ignored it because it's pretty noisy. So I'm not going to read too much into a single data point. You know, I'm not going to let it change my worldview. But you know, yeah, it was, it was strong. I will say it's quite strong. Right, and so uh, we get big in Q3 because we get that big jump in GDP, the value of all the things that we produce, and hours worked. Uh, employment times hours, the total hours worked didn't increase nearly as much. Productivity jumped. Of course, quarter to quarter, it can move around quite a bit. But it does feel like year over year, we're now solidly 2 2% plus. Too early to conclude that you know we're enjoying a revival and underlying productivity growth, but it does feel pretty good, right? I mean, feels... And there are some reasons to suspect maybe some we're seeing some improvement in underlying productivity gains. And I know, Chris, you would kind of agree yes, with that. I would agree with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, although, you know, to your point, are we going to stick at 2% or more? I don't know. That's a, that's a high bar, but I don't think we're going back to 1%, right? That, yeah. That seems pretty clear. So. Is that Dante's forecast? I can't remember. No, no, but that was the pre pandemic yeah. trend, right? Pre pandemic. So, I'm not that pessimistic, but not that. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Dante, to Dante's, uh, in, in favor of Dante's point of view, if you look at the uh, growth in productivity since the pandemic, uh, average annual productivity growth, I think it's 1.5, 1.6% per annum. And you look at the kind of the three, four year, period prior to the pandemic, it was 1.5, So, so far it's probably, I think it's premature to conclude that we're uh, in a, a new world of productivity growth, but it certainly feels 
pretty good. It feels pretty good. Are you going to say AI? Well, I was going to say AI. It can't be AI, right? Too early. Be. Too early. And in fact, uh, Carl, my brother, because he's deep in the AI, would argue it's hurting productivity. <laughs> we're all trying Hard to term. figure out. We're <laughs> devoting all these resources to try to figure out how to use AI. So it, 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 we haven't reaped the benefits yet. We will. I'm sure we will. But, you know, I haven't reaped the benefits yet. Uh, no, I don't think it's that. I, you know, I, I, uh, my sense is it might be all those quits that occurred back a year, two or three ago. Those folks, uh, a lot of people left their jobs, took other jobs that uh, I think are more suited to their education and skills and interests. And uh, you would think that would raise productivity, right? You know, there's that conference board survey about uh, people's uh, feelings about their jobs and people are feeling about as good as like about their jobs as, as they ever have in that survey, which has been conducted over a number of years. Uh, and that would suggest that, uh, you know, people are, uh, should that, that you, you would think that would be correlated with an improvement in productivity. If I like my job, I'm going to be more productive at it. Um, and I wonder if the, you know, the shift to remote work <clears throat> that's so prevalent, at least among kind of white collar workers, right? It allows for better job matching because now employers can hire anybody anywhere theoretically, and employees can go anywhere, and they don't have to physically move. So there should be should be easier to find better fits in in jobs now than there was prior to the pandemic, and that should lead to better productivity as well and lower yeah, personal unemployment. Yeah, that's my view. I mean, I think the there's a lot of debate about that. Obviously, yeah, people on the other side will take the other side of that very vociferously, um, like many CEOs across the country would say that's not, that's, I, that's not, that's not their experience, but that feels right to me. Um, and I, and, and both, and I, I think that becomes more important over time as new businesses form and they optimize around remote work. Uh, you know, they're not going to optimize around, uh, I don't think an office space, at least in general. So I think that would become more the case, but I think that that's still early too. We don't, yep. I, it's hard to know one way or It's a other. theory. It's a yeah. theory, just like my quit rate theory. Mm -hmm. any, any other, Chris, any other reasons to be? Uh, my theory, it's more about the workplace flexibility, especially um, given all the, the very high level of women's labor force participation. I at least attribute some of that to the fact that as workplaces are just more flexible and accommodating now uh, than, they, than they were in the past. Oh, interesting. Not, you mean separate from remote work? Yeah, yeah. You could still have a, a company that is not remote, but still allows its employees to you know, take some time off here or there, you know, run errands, pick up children. You know, I think that mentality has shifted versus you know, pre-pandemic times. So. Hmm. Any pushback there, Dante? I know you, you focus on the age distribution of the population and the fact that the older workers are less or constraining productivity growth of younger workers are kind of our going back to our work, previous work. Yeah. I mean, I would disagree with Chris's point. I think that certainly probably has some positive impact. You know, it's a question of how big is it and is, you know, does that, that, that doesn't sustain us at a higher level of productivity growth. I don't think probably it might give us a little bit of a boost here near term, but mm -hmm. um, I still think, yeah, age composition will, will play a role here in the near term at least. And, you know, could there be an AI revolution one day? Maybe, but I'm, you know, I'm still not sold that that you know is enough to drive significant productivity growth. You know, maybe it boosts us a couple tenths of a percent, but I'm not sold that it changes changes the game that much. 
Okay. All right. Well, that debate is going to be ongoing. Uh, a very important one, though, because, you know, if, if we are getting a revival with regard to productivity, and, and by the way, if we're getting, if we can continue to get good, solid labor force growth, maybe because of more immigration, uh, that's that helps to lift the supply side of the economy, allows the economy to grow more quickly without generating inflationary pressures. And that's all very positive. So we need to watch that very closely. Let's play the uh, let's play the game, the statistics game. Uh, we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through cues and deductive reasoning um, and clues. Best uh, stat is one that's uh, not so uh, so easy. We get it immediately. One that's not so hard. We never get it. And uh, if it's apropos to the topic at hand, all the better. So tradition has it. We go uh, to Marissa first. So therefore, I'm going to go to Dante first. No, only kidding. <laughs> Let's go with Marissa first. <laughs> He's getting spicy on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 7.2%. 7.2% in the job. Oh, uh, U6. Is that U6? Oh. Oh. Ding, 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 ding. Wow, nice. that is U6. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. That's nice job, that's Chris. Impressive. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Saturday morning, I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> energetic. <laughs> He's ready to go. You had lots of prep go. time. You're ready. You're, you're good. Yep. Yes, it is the so-called U6 unemployment rate, which is the broadest measure of labor underutilization that the BLS puts out. So when we talk about the unemployment rate, right, 3.9%, we're talking about the what they call U3, which is a narrower definition of unemployment or labor underutilization. So the U6 includes all the people that are counted in the traditional unemployment rate, which is people that don't have a job, people that are available to take a job if one were offered to them, and people that have actively looked for a job in the four weeks prior to being surveyed. So it includes all those people, but it also includes people that are working part-time for economic reasons, which means that they would rather be working full-time, but they either can't find full-time work or their employer cut their hours back because there's not enough work to do. And it also includes people that are what the BLS calls marginally attached to the labor force. So these are people that uh, are available to take a job if one were offered, but they haven't looked for a job in the prior four weeks, but they looked in the past year. So they looked sometime in the past year, but they hadn't actively looked in the past month. Um, so it includes all of those people as a proportion of the labor force and the marginally attached. So that's 7.2%. And I picked it because it is the highest rate since early February, 2022. And it's now at or slightly above where we were prior to the pandemic. So in like the months prior to the pandemic, it was 6.8, 6.97. And now we're at 7.2. It was about seven right before the pandemic. So it does suggest cooling off in the labor market, we can debate what the degree to that is or how quickly it's happening, but it does suggest that the labor market is loosening up significantly from where it has been over the past couple of years. Yeah. That's consistent with all the other like uh, reduction in hours, fewer temp jobs, the employment to population ratio. I noticed that uh, for the prime age workers that came in a little bit mm -hmm. uh, still very consistent with a strong labor market, uh, which is what we had prior to the pandemic. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, in 2019, prior to the pandemic, that was a, that was a very good labor market. Yep. So the fact that we're 
U6 is back to where it was in 2019. I, I you know, still pretty, still very yeah. good. Still very good. Um, so, um, oh, that's a good one. And then Chris, boy, that was impressive. I was got that right away. And yeah. I should say it's been, the U6 has been, you know, if you smooth it out for the volatility in the household survey, if you take like a three month moving average, it's pretty yeah. much been trending up all year since the start of 2023. Right. But that brings up this the so-called Sam's rule. Remember the mm-hmm. yeah, the I was just looking at that the, to see where yeah. we were. Yeah, where are we on that? She she's a, a former Fed economist. I think she has her own consulting firm now that came up with this regularity. I believe, and this is my interpretation of the Sam's rule. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but if the unemployment rate rises by a half a point or more over a period of a year compared to a year ago, you're in recession. You know, at that point, you're in recession. The economy's falling apart. Is is that roughly right? It's, is that, is the, it? I believe it's the three month moving average. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you take the three month moving average of the data, and then the year over year. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. We're uh, are we? We've got to be up a little bit on the unemployment rate because we were at three point nine. That's up a little bit, but certainly nowhere close to signaling recession. I saw a point thirty three. A point three three. Yeah, from that. Uh... From the low, really? From the lowest point in the right, because we were at three point four unemployment in April, right? Right. So just to give you context, and then, oh, I and see. we're three at nine t- today. So with that moving average, oh, I see. So it's from the low point, it's not like a, correct. It's not like a year over year thing. No, it, well, no, it's right. the lowest point within the year. Oh, the, within the year. Oh, yes. okay. That makes within sense. the last twelve okay. months, I should say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Boy, that sounds high though. Point three three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, the low, it was right. It was at three five as a three month average, and now it's right. three point eight three over the last three months. Oh, okay. So. okay. Yeah. So we're yeah. not. Yeah. Okay. Not there um, yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Trending though, right? Yeah, but yeah, but we're moving. We're moving out of that year, right? So. You have to go back to when was it three point? Well, I guess it was three point last three point five in April. Um, and actually it was three, five, three in May, one, two, three, four. So that's five months. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Another yeah. couple yeah. ticks here. We get the four one. Yeah. <laughs> Just one more this time is different, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this period is blown away all <laughs> everything. All the indicators are blown away. Leading indicators uh, of recession are blown away. Okay. Uh, and we'll have to write a a new textbook. Right? Yeah. There you indeed. go. Well, she herself recently discounted it i don't know if you saw that no article in the journal or the new york times or something um she didn't discount it but she said she wouldn't be surprised if this time was different oh is that right yeah yeah (laughs) we'll have to get her back on the podcast yes yeah Yeah. definitely yeah reminds me of campbell harvey with the yield curve yep he walked away but now he's back now he's 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 back in the recession camp oh he is is he yeah, well, he's saying that um, the Fed is making a mistake here, that uh, they're misreading the inflation figures. They should be cutting, right? Or they're going oh. to keep the rates too high, and that's going to push us in. So. Uh, oh. oh, okay. So Campbell Harvey's the Duke professor, finance professor who we had on as well, who right. popularized the shape of the yield curve as a predictor. So if the curve inverts, short rates rise above long, that uh, historically is uh, presaged recessions. 
And uh, he, when he was on our podcast, he said, this time is different. It's not right. And then you're, now you're saying he, he kind of shifting back. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Interesting. Um, Okay. Dante, you're up. Let's go with, which one should I use? Let's go with 1%. Which one should I use? That's a clue. You had more than one stat? Well, I I had but one. We 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 covered a few of them, so I had to. I was trying to figure oh, out which one we haven't scrambling. talked about yet. Yeah. Oh, it's from the ECI. Uh, it's it not the ECI? the ECI. No, oh. I thought about that, but yeah, it's not the ECI. One. It's not the jobs report. It's not from the jobs report now, but it is labor market related. Jolts the job is, opening literature. It is jolts. Yeah. What was one percent in is the uh, in the in the layoff related layoffs? It's the layoff rate. Yeah. Oh, it is the layoff rate, right? 1%? Okay. It's back down to one. It was 1.1% for a little while. It's back down yeah. to 1%. It's been you know, basically you know, flat for the last year. And I think we've talked about it before, but it's like, you know, how do we, how does the, how does the labor market really deteriorate if layoffs are just flat, right? UI claims are basically flat. Layoff rate from jolts is basically flat, right? We haven't seen any sort of sustained uptick. Yeah. In layoffs, and so if you know if we get some weakness in hiring, I think that's mm-hmm. that's okay. That you know that'll help ease job growth down. But if we don't see layoffs pick up, then it's hard to see a world where you know the labor market sort of falls apart. Yeah, totally. Although by the time layoffs do pick up, right? Aren't you already toast? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, but we're. I mean, are claims we? are at two hundred and ten thousand, yeah. two hundred fifteen thousand. You've got some room for them to tick up and not. Yeah. Be, so, true. like, if we were sitting at two fifty or two sixty thousand, you know, weekly claims. I might be a little more concerned that you're sort of on the the precipice, and you know, anything above that might signal a problem. But we're, I feel like we're so low that even if you you have some room for a little bit more weakness to come through before, I would really start to get worried. I don't know. I, I guess. Uh, no, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say recessions typically are a shock. There's some shock event and then it jumps up, right? So sure, I agree that it's, I think we've. this is what we've been claiming, that it's hard to see a, a slow movement into recession, right? We would tick up and eventually get into the 300,000 layoff rate. I mean, it's possible, but there has to be Without some something trigger. else happening, you mean, right? Yeah. Right. right. So. I kind of the rule of thumb I use is 250k in UI claim. That when I think about layoffs and in recession, I, I think about it has on a weekly basis over 250,000 or close to two before I alarm bells go off in my mind. Is that reasonable, Dante? Yeah, I think so, and I think that's even yeah. probably at the low end. Yeah, I think low we're, end because yeah. we were. I mean, we were basically there for a while over the summer. Yeah, you know, we were at yeah. 240, 250, even above that a few times. You know, yeah, and, oh, that's a good point. And things have come back down and sort of settled back down. And yeah, the yeah. only caveat on the UI claims is the seasonal adjustment. I think is a real problem. It's hard to interpret. You know, I think especially post pandemic. Yeah, it's been even yeah, noisier than usual. And yeah, it's it's yeah. a tough thing to do on a weekly basis. Yeah, but I take a lot of solace in the uh, to to layoffs being so low. I, I it's just hard to imagine consumers pulling back in any significant way unless there's a lot of layoffs. People are really nervous about their jobs and there's a lot of layoffs. And unless consumers pull back, it's hard to see recession. Now, shocks, obviously, if a shock comes along, that, you know, who knows? But but barring something un, uh, that we, that unknown unknown, it doesn't feel like that's happening here. Um, okay, that was a good one. Uh, Chris, you want to go next? Sure. Six point six percent in the jobs numbers. No. Uh, labor market related. No. <laughs> Housing related. Yes. Okay. 
There's a bunch of housing. Oh, I know what it is. Of rental course, vacancy, you do. rental vacancy. Uh, ding, ding, ding! Very yeah, good. There you go. <laughs> I can't believe I beat Marissa on that one. That doesn't that hadn't happened in a while. Yeah. You are. Uh, you are. You're fast. It's you know it is seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday for me, so I'll just I'll just say but you got to handicap it. Gotta look handicap. how nice it looks. Look, it's sunny. The sun rising. The sun just there. came up. Oh, it's beautiful there. It looks great. Your you, I was thinking your background is, was actually a, one of those Zoom backgrounds, like the staged, perfect. Oh no, uh, this is oh, this is this is your home. This is it. It's gorgeous. This is my reality. Well, this is your renovated home, right? You got your home renovated or something. Uh, yeah, well, the renovation I did was exterior, this one, but yes, this oh. was renovated since I bought it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very nice. Mm, I'm just nice. renovating left and right. Yeah. yeah. Like long. everyone else, apparently. Finished now? About. What'd you say, Chris? You're finished now? Renovations? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay. I know it took a while. There's nothing else to renovate. I've... <laughs> <laughs> did you get solar panels? No. I didn't. Oh, no solar panels. Electric car plug? Yeah. I did. Yeah. Okay. Ready for there that. Go. Very good. Um, All right. So, yeah, rental oh, vacancy 6.6% rental vacancy rate is the highest since the pandemic started. So, if you go back, you have to go back to Q1 2020. Um, so, there is more supply of housing uh, available on the rental side that is putting downward pressure on rents. Um, and that will, as we've mentioned before, will eventually feed through into lower uh, CPI inflation. So should take some of the pressure off the Fed having to um, raise rates, certainly. So we're moving in the right direction. So that's, this is my optimism here that uh, mm -hmm. at least the rental market, housing market is uh, seems to be adjusting. Right, it's still a lot of pressure. Affordability is a real issue, of course, for home buyers. But on the rental side, we should be getting some some more relief here. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's going to go higher, isn't it? The rental vacancy rate. I would expect it to because there's a lot of supply still under construction. A lot of multi-family right. apartments still under under construction, close to a million. So. Right, which is a record number of units under, and that goes back to the pandemic and all the uh, supply chain issues and labor market issues. That's right. So, so, and if you look at market rents, you know, there's different sources for this. They're flat to down. I mean, increasingly down, aren't they? You you sent me an email from apartment listings, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, which showing rent on a year-over-year -year basis down over one percent. I mean, that's not a lot, but it's, it has a negative sign attached to it. That's right. That's right. Now you want a couple caveats there. Okay. Yeah, of course, uh -huh. there are geographic differences. Some markets are still very tight. Others are are, are looser. And then, in particular, at the high end versus the lower end of the market, we're getting more significant uh, rent point. reductions at the higher end than at the. There's still lots of competition, of course, for more affordable uh, apartment rent. So there, we're not seeing quite the, the declines that that you're seeing. But overall, it, you know, things are moving in that uh, in that downward direction so and, and you would expect if vacancy is going to continue to move higher here we could see more net even more negative numbers on the rent side right that's right that's right and that would put even more downward, downward pressure, pressure under yeah. the cost of housing services and, and measured inflation correct right yeah that's a question of time though right these things also yeah. you know yeah overnight yeah. these leases are longer so it, right know, that's why our forecast in part has that 
you know, gradual reduction to back to the the Fed's two percent target. Right, right. But it certainly gives you some comp, some meaningful confidence, right, that inflation is going to come back to the target because at this point, the biggest difference between where we are in inflation and the target is the cost of housing services. Right. There's there's other things going on, but that far and away the biggest gap uh, explain uh, the thing that explains the difference between where we are and where we need to be. And if, and it feels like that, that's going to resolve itself over the course of the next year or so. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. This is actually Campbell Harvey's point. He, he oh, points to housing. He says, look, uh-huh. housing is a third of the CPI index. You know, you look at these market-based measures and they're suggesting, you know, we're at the Fed's target. If you were to exclude housing, right? Uh, inflation's at the Fed's target already, maybe even below. Um, so that's his uh, yeah uh, r- rationale for why the Fed may be actually making a mistake by keeping rates too high for too long. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I can't remember who was doing this with. Maybe it was uh, one of our one of our other colleagues. We were looking at uh, inflation across metropolitan areas. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, constructs the Consumer Price Index. And does that for a bunch of MSAs, metropolitan statistical areas, and you can see since the pandemic hit, you know we saw this large jump in inflation in a number of metropolitan areas, really across all areas, but in some areas a lot more than in other areas. Even though unemployment and other measures, labor market slack, you know, really didn't change. So this was this kind of the shift in. The, the so-called Phillips curve, the relationship between mm. labor market slack, unemployment, and inflation. And if you look at the areas where you saw the biggest jump, you know, shift up in the in the Phillips curve, it was in those metropolitan areas that you know were all juiced. The housing market was all juiced, and rents were rising very rapidly in the South and the West. So that would suggest that as these markets cool off, and they are now definitely cooling off, the Biggest rent declines are in areas where we saw the biggest rent increases back when people, um, you know, in the in the wake of the pandemic. You're going to see that inflation come right back in, and that's what we're observing. Uh, so a lot of this is explain a lot of what we've been observing in, with regard to inflation is related to the cost of housing services. Um, okay, well, my problem, and that's my stat? problem, is yep. my stat. Everyone's taking my numbers left and right. It's like I go, oh, geez. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make it a little hard. I think uh, eight point five million, eight point five million, and another way of measuring the same thing, uh, sort of five percent. So eight point five million and five percent. Uh, any ideas? Is it from the jobs report? It is. We did talk about it. And that's a big clue. Is it multiple job holders? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. That's right. My <laughs> gosh. Holy macaroni. I thought that was going to be impossible to get. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. 8.5 million. Chris, you brought this up. I, I did. I did, did I you did. actually say 8.5 million? I think- you might have. You might have said eight point five. I can't. Oh, remember. I think I said eight hundred thousand. The the increase. Oh, the increase. I, yeah. I didn't say the level. Right. Yeah. It, it it is up a lot. Uh, I will point out though, it, the five percent is uh, multiple job holders as a percent of total employed, 
that 5% is almost precisely what it was before the pandemic. So it has recovered the number of multiple job holders has picked up and recovered. And we did see a big jump, particularly last month. We'll see how much of that's noise and how much of that is reality. But nonetheless, uh, it's still uh, uh, as a percent of the uh, the size of the labor market, it's just back to where we were like everything else. We're back to 2019, you know, consistent with what happened back in 2019. Um, okay, that was good. Boy, we're, you know, the problem is we've been doing this now for the podcast for two and a half years. We're, we're getting to know each other pretty well. <laughs> so it's getting hard to come up with a, a really good statistic. Uh, uh, but uh, that was great. Um, okay, uh, maybe uh, we're going to keep this a relatively short podcast, too, because it's Saturday morning, 7 a.m. West Coast time, and I'm in London, and I got I want to do some other stuff. So we got to get going here. Uh, but let's take a few uh, listener questions, two or three listener questions, if we can. Uh, I, I've got one, but maybe, Mercy, you can go first. And uh, are there any good uh, questions that folks have asked? Yeah, let's take a couple about the housing market. Um, okay. So there's a couple questions related to how big of a factor have institutional buyers been? Uh, you know, people that are just going in to buy and flip. Is that a big factor? And what happens if, as we say, so multifamily prices, we're expecting to come down, rents come down. Does that have an effect, a a chilling effect on the single family market as potential buyers would move to rent and potentially slow prices on the single family market? How does all of those price uh, interactions happen. Okay. So those are two questions, I guess. One is related to housing. One, first I'll turn to you uh, on investor. Cause we, we actually do calculate the sheriff's home sales that are to investors of different types. Um, w- w- what's the role of the investor in the current market? Yeah. So the investor volume or share had risen uh, over the course of the pandemic, you did have investors coming in. More recently, I believe, though, it's it's backing off the activity. I think higher rates are certainly a deterrent as well. Uh, and house prices remain high. Rents are coming in. So not as attractive, perhaps, um, for an institutional investor as it was in the past. What's unique, you mentioned flips this time around versus, say, the 2008 period. Yeah. Flipping is not the major uh, activity that's that's going and on. So, explain a flip. What's a flip? Oh, a flip is a um, a purchase and a, a, with a subsequent sale of a home within a by our definition a twelve month period, right? So it's an investor coming in, purchasing a home, maybe rehabbing it, um, improving maybe not. it, maybe not, right? In some hot, very hot markets, yeah. um, and then turning around and and selling it rather than occupying the home or or renting it out. So that activity is really diminished compared to uh, what we saw last time around. I think part of the reason is just the expense, their building costs. Right? We had these supply chain issues, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't particularly attractive to purchase a home and put a lot of investment into it and turn around because of the um, the the cost of building materials, also labor, right? Especially in the height of the pandemic as well, was was difficult to to get. So. Um, the institutional investors that have been entering the market have really been focused on a long, more longer term portfolio of rental properties, right? So single family rent rentals, 
um, certainly grew in certain markets, particularly in the South. They contribute uh, certainly to the, the ecosystem here. And there's a lot of discussion and debate about whether or not they are actually driving out first-time home buyers. By and large, I don't see that as a, a very significant factor. It certainly, you know, there's comp- they create some competition, but you know, really it's the lack of supply that has been uh, driving up the uh, the prices more than you know, this additional set of bu- um, buyers out there. But speaking nationally or, or globally, right? Certain markets, clearly you have a higher percentage of these um, institutional buyers and you could make a, another argument, but Overall, I don't see them as being a root cause of the kind of the higher home price appreciation we've experienced. Yeah, I don't I know, think, is it Mark? If you uh, if you yeah, agree, yeah, no, that all makes sense. I mean, I did what I would I found interesting in because we get all the transactions, uh, housing transactions, transaction by transaction in the country, and we can identify, uh, you know, who's buying the home, and if they have a. A, 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 a corporate identifier like an, an S corp or C corp, we consider them to be investors. Uh, and the uh, actual volume of sales transactions by investors has fallen like like all other transactions in this right. environment. But as a share of total transactions, it's, it's I think it's it's maybe down a little bit, but it's still pretty elevated by historical norm, historical standards, I think. But it, but the the actual volume is way way down, like the entire market. The entire market is way off. But I I, I but I agree with what you said. I I I don't think it's played that mean. Certainly not nationwide. You know, in certain markets, as you say, but not nationwide. Right. Right. Been that big a deal. Uh, the other question was around uh, the uh, uh, what's going on in the multifamily market and rents and what that might mean for the mm-hmm. single family market and house prices. Uh, Chris, you want you want to weigh in on that as well? Uh, sure. The, the markets, the housing market, is integrated, right? So it's you know, what happens in multifamily it does have an impact on single family and vice versa. So to the extent there are more multifamily properties coming online and that's going to depress uh, rents, uh, they could put some downward pressure. On the single-family um, market as well, but really, um, you know, there's still ample competition in the affordable segment of the market. So there is some distinction. I should say there is distinction between the multifamily and the single-family when we get to those price tiers, right? Where the multifamily really has most impact is on that more affordable single-family property. So there might be some substitution effect there, but still, there's so much demand for um, single-family, uh, more affordable homes out there that I don't I don't expect even with these modest rent declines that that's going to really resolve or cause those prices to fall substantially anytime soon, more, more around the margins than anything. Yeah, the only, I guess, caveat would be that the weakness in house prices is really in the high end of the market. Right. And these apartment... The million units that are coming to coming to completion are mostly high end. You know the big multifamily towers in big urban areas. So so it could be the case that that supply in the multifamily side and the weak rents could put some additional downward pressure on prices in the high end of the single family market. But I don't think you're right. I don't you know the rest. That's a that's probably no no more than the top. 20% or 25% of the market. The rest of the market 
very undersupplied. The, the 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 rental that's coming in isn't going to be competition for that Tennessee. I don't think it might be a, it might be a little bit over time. You get things yeah. pushed down, but I think it, it's on the margin. I don't think it, it's a, it's a catalyst for big declines in, in housing values, single family housing values. Yeah, I'd say it it, it uh, helps prevent prices from rising or accelerating even further, right? Because yeah. if yeah. those markets really get out of uh, equilibrium, right? If the rents are so much cheaper than the um, the single family home, you will see people switching. Um, but to your point, I don't I don't know that it really puts significant downward pressure on prices. Maybe just keeps them from rising uh, appreciably or yeah. accelerating. I've got a I got a listener question too, yeah. um, housing related, and I'll throw that out there. It's and it's interesting. Uh, the the question is because people are not buying and selling homes. We've got this lock in effect, you know, uh, and home sales are rock bottom. I think we're what are we total home sales of five million or something annualized, something like that. Even, uh, typically, it's like seven million, I believe. Yeah. You know, something. Just get for context. I mean, we're, sales are about as low as they've been. Uh, you only see it in the teeth of the pandemic during the shutdown or in the teeth of the financial crisis. I mean, really, that's the one uh, part of the economy that's taken it on the chin with the, the higher rates, the higher mortgage rates, so really weak home sales. And the question is, is that lifting consumer demand, consumer spending? Because if people aren't buying homes, maybe they're not saving for the down payment and they're using that extra cash to help them spend on, on other things. So could the strong consumer spending be in part related to the fact that they're just not spending on housing? Interesting question. I, I've got a view, but uh, I don't know if others have a view on that. Well, it's not just new home buyers too, right? It's people who are not upgrading a home, right? Oh, yeah. Because they're, and, and, they're locked yeah. into a current home. And so they're not, you know, putting more of their budget towards a, a bigger mortgage because they don't want to take on higher rates. Yeah. That's that's the question. Yeah. Yeah. Of that 5 million, I'm making up 5 million. I think that's the right number. I think 4 million, or, is that right, Chris? I think 4 million is, is four, a little over four is, is existing and the rest of it is new, you know, something like that, new home sales. And that's wow. even low. That's, all right. That's I, think even, it's under, I think it's under 5 million at this point. It's probably under 5 million at this point, right? Or eight or something like that. So. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, that doesn't resonate with me. No. I mean, generally, yeah. you, you know, you get a lot of spending with home sales. You you right. go buying a home, and then you buy stuff. You know, you, a lot of people buy a car for their furniture. Furniture. They do home improvement, yeah. like you did, Marissa. You know that kind of thing. So the fact that home sales are down, I think, probably me is a, has been a constraint on spending. Not you know, it's not. Oh, it, and I and I don't know that people are saving any less. I don't think they're giving up on home ownership. I think they're probably. They're having a hard time saving because they're spending more on rent. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they're rating their 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 uh, down payment fund to in increase their spending. Uh, that wouldn't be my my sense of things. What, what in the it? GDP report, housing related expenditure was one of the strongest spending service categories that we saw in Q3. Oh, exactly. oh that's yeah. right. Yeah, you, yeah. You, so you, it's you, not you, right. It was yeah. like. Home yeah. ins homeowners insurance and um, other housing related insurance, renters insurance, rents are yes, they're 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 coming down now, but they've been really high. So people are spent if they're not spending on 
a house, a down payment, maybe they're paying a lot in rent, more in rent that they than they'd like to spend, which is also harming the ability to save for a down payment. Yeah. Okay. Um, any, uh, Marissa, any other questions non-housing related? Maybe yeah, we'll there's some labor work. market questions, which okay. would be apropos. One question was actually about the U6, and it was asking... Why do, why don't we focus more on that? Why do we focus on the U3, the traditional unemployment rate? Why don't we focus on this broader measure? Why does the the unemployment rate, why is that the thing? Why is that the statistic instead of a broader measure? That's an interesting question. Well, uh, I think, I don't know the answer. Maybe Dante, you do, but I suspect this is sort of like a history yeah, kind of question legacy. where maybe the use the U6, you know, the, the current population survey was redesigned in 1994. And it could be that this was added after sort of the traditional met metric of unemployment was added. And, you know, it's just, just sort of historically the, the traditional measure of unemployment has been there for a long time. And then these sort of other metrics were added later. Do you know if that's true? I'm making I, I'm that up. I, That sounds right to me. It feels like legacy. I mean, because the yeah. rate's been around since the beginning of time, right? Before the, yeah, go back to the 20s, right? Right, right. Even before that, I think we had, we measured the U3. Well, sure there are there are measurements of unemployment back to the 20s, but yeah. they weren't actually collecting the data back then. They sort of extrapolated it extrapolated. back. Okay. Um, but I, would guess I think it was the 40s that we actually yeah. started collecting data. But I, I, I suspect it's just legacy because yeah, and we have more historical data. The other thing is U6 includes things that I think are pretty hard, maybe harder to measure. You know, more volatile month to month. I'm making this totally up, but I could be right. <laughs> so, it is more volatile month to month. If yeah. you look yeah. at the data, it is. If it's more volatile, yeah. you want to use a series, you want to <laughs> use something that, because you don't want, it's signal, I keep saying signal and noise. Mm -hmm. You want something that is more signal than noise. And if it has month to month, it, it, so if it's more volatile, it's just less valuable, you know. Not that yeah. we shouldn't be looking at it, That and we do, you know, very carefully, because it is a measure of labor market slack. Um, but, um but I, I, I get Dante. I don't know. Do you have any any other theories? No, th I mean, I think part of it is just yeah. I mean, in times of stress, we tend to look at it and how it relates to you yeah. three. In times when things are you know sort of now, like it, it, there just isn't a huge amount of movement between you know the gap between the two t tends to stay pretty stable when the economy is doing pretty well. So there's not a whole lot of reason to focus on it month to month at a time like right now. But I think right when if things start to deteriorate or if you're coming out of a recession, right, obviously that gap tends to get a lot more attention, a lot more focus than it does now. So, okay, let me ask you this. What if you each of you, if you could pick only one, one measure of labor market slack that gives you the best sense of what's going on in the labor market and what it means, what would that be? Okay, I'll give you a second to think about that. Dante, you first. I mean, I feel like it's probably prime age employment to population ratio is oh, like the, the, the yeah okay that's exactly what I would have said right right because I you know, we've done so much work showing how closely that relates to wage growth yeah okay which well, is I mean yeah it gets rid of yeah. the noise right I mean that's the, yeah. the goal is to get rid of noise if you only have one yeah. measure and employment to population for prime age workers twenty five to fifty four years old yeah. yeah okay and and that's showing the market is is strong but not overly tight consistent with 2019 at this point yeah, right. yeah okay marissa what would you pick 
Well, I guess if I wanted to know um, what was happening very quickly, I'd look at UI claims, right? UI I mean, claims. I think okay. yep. um, the the problem with all economic statistics is generally that they're they're lagged. So we're often finding things out that happened one, two, three months ago. The nice thing about UI claims is that it's what what happened with layoffs last week, right? So you can easily identify quickly moving stress. And to Chris's point earlier, it tends to happen pretty quickly. So you tend to go from a low level to a high level and start moving up really fast. So if I wanted like the pulse of what's going on right now, I think I'd look at UI claims. Yeah. Okay. That's another really good one. Chris, do you have one? Would I, I would have uh, selected the EPOP. EPOP would have been, and yeah. certainly UI claims for a more high yeah. frequency. Uh, I've noticed no one's picking vacancy, the job openings, which is kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the, uh, the flavor du jour, right? I mean, if you talk to, other labor market economists, they look at the vacancy number of job openings relative to the number of unemployed, you know, and that's yeah. what they've been using. But no, I mean, I particularly, I personally think that isn't a very good measure uh, for lots of, I don't think we can measure job openings well, or vacancies very yeah. well. If yeah. we could measure it properly, I think yeah. it would be. If you could measure it, in yeah. theory, yeah. it makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah, so. okay. So is the U3 versus U6 kind of analogous to using core inflation versus headline inflation? Mm, How so? Yeah, you're focusing on the less volatile core. Yeah, okay. You want to focus on the less volatile labor market. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yep, for sure. Um, Okay. Uh, Versus not convinced. (laughs) Because I think food and energy prices are really important to consumer spending, and they're actually... A big chunk of what people spend their money on. So I do think it's it's useful to look at overall inflation to kind of gauge how people might be thinking about spending in the very near term. I mean, yes, like longer run taking out those that volatility um well, is I, is important for monetary policy and what to yeah. do about it, right? But I do think if you're looking at the financial health and spending patterns of a household, energy prices and food prices matter a lot. Well, I think maybe this is the the right uh, analogy. So we look at core inflation because it gives you the best forecast of future inflation, right? Because it it, it abstracts from things that are jumping up. And all yeah. and so that's why central banks, Fed looks at core because they're trying to forecast inflation. Everything you just said, Marissa, Totally right. Totally right. Yeah. What they're what they're trying to do is forecast in the core. Here, probably the same thing. If you're trying to forecast where we're going, you know, in terms of labor market conditions, U three probably is just easier to use than the U six because it's less volatile. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm stretching, yeah, I think. But you know, I think that I think that's a good explanation as to you know why we another good explanation why we focus on U three as opposed to U six. Can I can I ask another listener question that I think is really good? Yeah, far away. Is if you could if you could have any statistic that doesn't exist today? Oh, what would it be? You know, like what do you think would be really helpful to have that we don't have? And that could be either from a government collection or it could be some sort of like big data, you know, residual from oh, private man. sector data. 
Holy cow, that is a great, great question. I've never even thought of that. This, yeah, this might require yeah. some some maybe thought. maybe we, we take that up next week. I have to think about that. Uh, there's a just in some degree, I'm like my mind is overloaded because there's so many things. <laughs> but on the other hand, which one would I pick? I don't know. Does anyone have a view on that? Uh, we could take that up uh, next week. We'll give it some thought because that's a that's a really interesting question. Chris, do you have anything you want to bring up? Uh, my head is spinning. Too. I mean, it yeah, depends how far you, you could go into the yeah. science fiction realm and say, well, if I could understand everybody's individual preferences and right, uh, yeah. Risk, not, uh, right. Okay, risk let, tolerance. Right? Yeah, I don't think that's what they meant, though. Yeah, no. I don't. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, you know, really study. But uh, outside of that, you know, I think um, my. I could know answers. what everyone was thinking in the world, and then I could add it all up. Yeah. I would. I'd really like that. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. some version of that. Some uh, version income, of that. Actually, I, uh, from a credit perspective, if we really income's always been the holy grail. Um. If we actually just measure people's income mm-hmm. on a real-time yeah. basis more more accurately than they do we do currently, that would give us a lot of insight. I don't know. I've got to give that some thought. I gotta right. give it some thought. Um okay, uh, I think we're gonna call this a podcast because we, you know, this is a Saturday. Uh, I, I think Alana is saying, guys, let's cut this. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Wrap it up She's about boys. to play the out- outro music. <laughs> She said, so I think with that, unless anyone's got uh, anything else they want to say, going, going, gone. No. Okay. We're going to call this a podcast. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. Take care now.